Good evening. What is it, like 12 days till Christmas or something? Something like that? Crazy. You know, when I was young, it took forever for Christmas to come. Remember that? It's like, oh, when is it going to get here? And now it's like, it's here too quickly. I'm not ready. It's funny the transition that takes place in, in time and, and all those things. And Matthew chapter 7, if you've got your Bible, open it up there if you need a Bible. There's some somewhere on the table back there. You can find it. Let's pray once again as we get started. Father, your words are life, and as we read them tonight, may they impart life to us. May they give us insight to um, just our own hearts and character. May we be receptive, Father, to even change what needs to be changed within us as we read those things that you spoke, Lord, you, you spoke them to the multitude, multitudes there on that hill, and you speak them still to us. And Father, may the words of life be spoken into our hearts tonight. We thank you again for your favor, your grace, your mercy, Lord, that endures forever. We are thankful, and we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're coming towards the end of Jesus' first sermon. Remember, the people that he's speaking to are people who are coming from miles around following this unique teacher. They are not educated people, the majority of them. Many of them are illiterate. They are people who are marginalized in society. They, they are not the, the cream of the crop. And he started off with this blessing. Blessings of God who would give to these people who were normally outside of this. He says, this actually belongs to you. To those of you who are poor in spirit. To those of you who are mourning. To those of you who show mercy, those of you who are peacemakers, all, all those things of blessing that he talked at the beginning in chapter 5. And, and then this whole journey has been one inward in that he's trying to, to get to what we're really about, what are our motives. He's trying to get to the heart of the issues. That's why he, he said if a person is angry with his brother and he says, you idiot, you're in danger of hell. It's as if you've murdered him. If you look at a woman in lust for her, you've committed adultery within your heart. And then he moves into the things that we do and trying to get, again, the motives that we do about the many prayers. It doesn't matter all the, the things that people see. What matters is what's going on within you, that God is concerned about those things. And as he begins here in chapter 7, or as we continue in chapter 7, he's kind of summarizing much of what we've walked through. And he's bringing it to this conclusion. And let's read chapter 7, verses 1 through 5 to begin with. Words that you're probably going to sound familiar to us. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye 
when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know, I don't know how it has come to this, but for the large part, Christians are often known as being the most judgmental of people. There's this propensity to see Christians as being very judgmental. And and you have to wonder, how did it ever get to that? I mean, when you read the scriptures, I mean, everything after chapter 3 of Genesis is pretty much a train wreck. I mean, there is just all kinds of stuff. We see murder in the beginning, but in family members. We see rape, we see incest, we see idolatry, and these are from good, supposedly, people. We see such a mess. And, and, you know, there are things in the Bible that I guarantee you never heard in Sunday school. Because if you did, you would go home and tell your parents, you know what I heard? You know what Judah did? And your parents would go, we can't have that in our Sunday school class. Let's not talk about that. And they'd go to the Sunday school teacher and leaders and the church and we need to stop teaching the Bible because it's too much. We have to censor it. Of course, we don't do that. We just skip those passages. We don't talk about those things. And again, some things are definitely age appropriate. You know, you can't. But the idea is how how have we ever gotten to a place where we are ever not in need of God's grace? How could it happen that we would read the scripture and not see ourselves as in desperate need of God's mercy and grace? And so how could a people arise who read the Bible, who believe the scriptures, what they say, and to think themselves better than others? How could that happen? And, you know, when I see that taking place, when I see Christians being very high-minded or or being uh, self-righteous or condemning people for various things, just having an attitude within them, it, it just... It makes me want to distance myself from them. I don't know if you guys are the same way. It's like, you know, we're on the same team, but I want to turn my jersey inside out. You know what I mean? It's like, no, I don't want to be. In fact, I I even find myself saying I'm a Christ follower now instead of I'm a Christian. Because that word Christian is used for everything. And so I want to, I want to bring a distinction from who I am, from maybe what they've seen on TV or what they've read in the newspaper somewhere or gone to a church and they said, oh yeah, man, this guy. And yeah, well, I'm a Christ follower trying to ease, you know, the, the transition. And heaven forbid someone should ask me on an airplane. So what do you do for a living? Well, I'm an evangelical pastor, and this is a long flight, brother. You know, it's like, 
Oh my gosh, the poor person. Oh, you, you throw that out there and automatically now the question or the, the conversation just gets changed. It's no longer natural. Oh, I can't really talk to you about anything because you might judge me. And I don't even like to be called pastor. You guys know that. And so I, I scramble for things to, what do I do? And in fact, on Facebook, it says I'm a social architect. And, and, and I spelt that wrong. Mary pointed that out to me. I just, I got to find something away from this identity of judgmental, self-righteous, bigoted people. And, and there are so many stories that, that we see, you know, in the news. There is a group of, quote, Christians, and I don't know if they're Christians or not. You have a hard time just understanding how could these people embrace the love of God and do the things that they do. These people who call themselves Christians who, who go to the graveside of American soldiers who have died in combat and they protest with signs saying that this is God's judgment on them because uh, we love fags and things like that. And you see that and you just cringe and you think, oh my gosh, I want nothing to do with that. I don't want to be associated with that. That just... It strikes so against what I know of who Jesus is. And in fact, I, I want to protest against them. And I'd love to just infiltrate their members and, and go with our own signs, you know, and just be standing with them with a the sign that says, stay in school or you can wind up like me or something like that. I don't know. Or I love Bob here, you know, just something that would, that would make people look and laugh, you know, just to try and spin it so that it wouldn't be taken so awfully. I, I just, those things get to me, you know, and, and then it comes to politics. We're going to be coming up to the elections and oh my goodness, Talk about things getting heated. There are people who are sure that if you are a Republican, you cannot be saved. And vice versa. There are people who are sure if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, you cannot vote for that person because of what they believe. And you see them start going at it. And that, if you guys ever wonder, why don't you talk about politics? That's why. You know, we have people who come to Genesis who are Democrats. And we have people who come to Genesis who are Republicans. That's kind of how the United States is made up. You know, there's the red and there's the blues. I forget which is which. But, you know, it's, it's who we are. And I'm not going to add more division. I'm not going to put out a voter's guide. This is how you need to vote. Because these are our beliefs. Because by doing that, I am going to alienate some people who we are trying to present the love of God to. And then I find myself, 
I can start judging those people who are too religious. Corrine always busts me on this. Well, you're just judging them now. You know, you, you see someone and they're very, you know, legalistic. Like, oh man, glad we're not like them. Yeah, those guys are so judgmental. What am I doing? I'm judging. And you see, I think all of this, you know, kind of stems from what happens when we don't realize the plank that's in our eye. You know, we're sitting here thinking, well, yeah, these people are so judgmental. And then I start, it's like I pull the plank out of one eye and I stick it in the other eye. I just go right from one place to the other. And we do this so easily. Some people who are very open and just, you know, confessing their sin. If you don't do the same thing, they look at you, oh, you're not very deep in your Christian faith. Yeah, me, I'm, I'm open before God and I don't care what people think, but you. And it's like now you're becoming just a judger of the people and how you judge. And it's silly. And I think what it stems from, I think the root is the sin that took place in the garden that we can be like God and therefore we can render judgment. We think that we can. We are so equitable in our judgment. Unlike those people, I'm able to, to see things clearly. I'm able to deal with things very rationally in my judgment. I, I know more information. I see a little bit further. And you see what we're doing? We're taking that idea of what belongs to God and saying, I can do this because, yes, I, I have this understanding like God. And it's kind of funny. It, it, whenever I start to get, I just like assume that Jesus is right there on my shoulder, you know, and I'm saying, oh, can you believe those guys? Jesus is behind me going, I know. <laughs> What's with them? You know, let's look what they do. And Jesus rolling his eyes. Can you believe it? And I just put him right there with me. He, he's on my side. And I find myself, you know, thinking that I have the right core to be able to judge others. I'm the one who's able to make those kinds of decisions. But Jesus says that we will be judged like we judge others. Which takes us back to the beginning in chapter 5 where he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. We are going to be judged. He says, you will be judged. It's not, you might, you better watch out. He says, you will be judged the way you judge others. Which should check each of us. It should kind of startle us and, and make us wonder, wow, how am I dealing this? When we render ultimate judgment, and the idea of judgment, some translations translate it condemnation, or it could even be a critical. It's this idea of, I'm going to render this ultimate judgment. What we're doing is we're fostering a lie that I have the ability to see like God. I have the ability to know what really is going on. 
And how many times have I felt that someone has misjudged me? They don't know me. They don't know what I was thinking. They don't know the circumstances. They don't see things clearly. But how many times do I think about that when I render the judgment? Something that's very helpful for me when I'm confronted with a circumstance and a person maybe that I have found offense in, before I just start blasting them, I try and understand why did they think or do what they did? Can I understand it? Because they did it for a reason. Whatever it was that they did, there was a motive behind it. No one thinks, I'm just going to do something wrong. Everyone thinks that what they do is right in some way, maybe twisted or whatnot. But do you ever stop and think, why did they do what they did? Why are they doing what they're doing? Can I understand them a little bit better instead of just throwing stones, instead of just casting out and passing judgment? and thinking I have the ability to see and discern and act like God. And you see, what we're doing is we're putting a barrier between people and the Lord when we start to judge. Those people who are picketing and and protesting, who are saying, you know, God doesn't love these people, what they're doing is putting a barrier between people and God. And Jesus doesn't like that. His harshest words were towards those who did just such things. You think of the temple when Jesus cleared out the temple. You guys are thieves. You're trying to make a profit. People are trying to worship and come to the Lord in prayer, and you're making a a roadblock in between them and the Lord. And it caused his anger and a just anger as well. And so we recognize that We need mercy. Why would we make others jump through hoops? We are in line with all the people throughout the scripture. We see ourselves as in need of mercy. I want mercy for myself. Then we should want to give it to others. But we think that because maybe we're on the team, I'm on Jesus' team, I have the right now to boast. I have the right to, you know, act a little bit better because I know the truth. You don't. But are you ever not in need of God's mercy? Are you ever not in need of God's grace? It's a continual thing. Karina and I were talking just last night about the the change in just our perception and the things that we are doing and how we are living from just a few years ago. I feel it's a maturing in my life from just four years ago. It's actually, we were kind of pinpointing, I was pinpointing certain times about in 2005 when I really started just thinking a little bit differently as I'm reading the scriptures and seeing Jesus and it just started changing my view. And I was able to see how critical I was, how judgmental I was. And I just, again, see this as us thinking ourselves a little higher than we should when we start wanting to pass this kind of judgment. And what Jesus does in verse 3 says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? 
How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus is telling us to put our energy into our own examination. Instead of being so concerned about everything everyone else does, spend that energy and look at yourself. Do a little self-examination. Where are you in need of God's grace? Where are you in need of help? Where are you deficient? What is wrong with you? Now, some of you, when I say, you're in need of God's grace, where are you in need of God's grace? Something jumped into your mind. I'm in need here. Here's an area where I'm struggling. Here's an area that I have problem. And others of you are unsure and think, well, I'm not the one that has any need. I'm not the one who who really has the problem. It's so-and-so. They're the one who's really, you know, they're they're involved with drugs and they're involved with alcohol and they're involved with it. And you see what we're doing? We're, where are we examining? We're examining others and not ourselves. And, and so we start focusing and we begin to compare. What's wrong? Well, they do this, this, and this, and this. Oh, and you don't, so therefore they're wrong. But what is the plank in your eye. Something's there. What is it? Because before you can talk to whoever it is, with whatever they're going through, you need to deal with the plank that's in your eye. And so Jesus is telling us to spend some time self-examining, to do that inventory to look just at yourself first. He doesn't tell us not to help the other person. He tells us before you can, you need to deal with yourself. And you see, if we put our energy at looking at ourselves, I think it does two things. First of all, it keeps us from hypocrisy. It keeps us from putting on that mask. It keeps us from pretending we're something that we're not. It, it keeps us from going to that self-righteous place if we're able to look at ourselves clearly. And the second thing it does is it opens the possibility for our community to be one of healing. If we're not judgmental, we're able to open up for healing. In John 3, 16 and 17, I've been sharing this a lot lately, you know, Jesus said, you know, God sent his only son, whoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And then verse 17, he says, that I did not come into the world to judge the world, but I came that they might be saved. His purpose was that of salvation. His purpose was that of healing. That's what we want. We cannot bring salvation and healing if we're going to be concerned with just judging. And I will not bring salvation or healing to someone else unless I first get rid of what's in my eye. If I'm unaware of my own shortcoming, I will not deal with others the right way. Period. If you're not sure of your shortcoming, ask someone who knows you. Ask your wife. Ask your kids. 
there is plenty of shortcoming in each of us. There is a whole lot. And if you're not aware of that, it's going to taint how you speak to others. Again, when I counsel someone, I'm always mindful of the shortcomings, even if it's not in the same subject. Well, I don't have a problem in this. I, I'm not a person who you know, is abusing drugs, and so I don't have to deal with that. But God always wants me to be aware of the shortcomings, the need I have for grace. I am poor in spirit. I am bankrupt. And if I lose that mindset, I cannot bring healing. You see, only those who have been healed, who recognize the mercy of God, can bring healing to others. If we don't experience it, if we don't see it in us, how are we going to bring it to others? We will come across self-righteous. We will come across legalistic. We will come across incompassionate. We have to recognize that poverty of spirit, dependency on Jesus, on his mercy. When you know yourself, you can become empathetic with others, if you know yourself. The problem is we don't inspect ourselves. It's easier to inspect others. We don't deal with the plank in our eye. We can just deal with the dust in the other people's. And it doesn't say that there isn't anything wrong with them. It just says, if you're going to deal with someone, deal with yourself first. Because now I can be empathetic with them. Now I come across as a person of mercy and bringing healing instead of bringing condemnation. It changes everything when you deal with yourself first. This is not just about, I'm going to throw out some scriptures. Here's what's wrong with you. Blah, blah, read this, do this, 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 this. There. You've got the scripture. It's about using the truth of God's revelation to bring reconciliation and healing. Not just proving to someone where they're wrong, but caring enough to help them to be whole. And until we do that, we cannot help them. When we do that, then we can help them. And what this is doing is, is it's causing there to be honesty within ourselves and within the others. Why is it that it's so hard for the Christian community to be honest, to be open? I remember when I first became a follower of Christ, I got involved with this small Sunday school group. I, I was hanging out with an older group, and then I, I kind of, well, you should go with your own age group. And so I went with this age group that I was in. And, and you know, a lot of these kids, I guess, had gone to church their whole life. I hadn't. And so they were talking about heaven and, you know, what, you know, when we go to heaven, it's just going to be glorious. And, and, you know, my thoughts on what was heaven and glorious was very different from them. You know, it was about drugs and about sex and all those things. And, and I one time said something. So, I mean, it's kind of going to be like, you know, being able to be high and just, you know, I said other things as well, because my, my mind and my mouth was unfiltered. 
This was my language. This is what I talked about. I'll never forget the Sunday school teacher's expression. I'll never forget all the air that left the room when I said some of the things I said. And they went, (gasps) you know, and it's like, and I knew all of a sudden that I had said something wrong, that what I had just shared out of my openness was wrong. And I remember thinking, okay, don't do that again. Don't share anymore. And think about, I mean, how sad. I mean, not sad for me. I mean, I'm okay. I did okay. Started my own church. Now I could say whatever I want. Uh, (laughs) But how sad that the Christian community would not be a place that would allow honesty would be a place that would make us feel ashamed. Again, haven't we read the scripture? I always marvel about the truth that's in the scripture about everyone. They're all a bunch of conniving, cheating scoundrels, just like you and me, just like us. And it's there on the pages of scripture. You ever wonder about David when all these things are written, when he goes back, let me read, oh yeah, that's me again. There it is. And the pages of scripture for the world to see. How sad that it's not safe to be honest. What would happen if the deepest, darkest, most regrettable things in your life were just known, were able to be shared and put out publicly without any fear of ridicule. What would happen if if we became a place where someone could openly say I'm struggling with homosexuality and come out of the closet. I'm dealing with drug addiction. I'm dealing with pornography. I'm dealing with whatever it is and could openly say that and know that they are in a sea of mercy. That they would have the freedom to open their lives with their believing family and talk about their addictions, the marriages, and the problems, the things that are going on or not going on in their marriage, their fears, their past abuse, and knowing that all they will receive is grace. What if we became that? And what does it take for us to become that? It starts with the plank in your eye. It starts with you saying, no, I I don't see the wrong that's in my, but I'll tell you about what you need to do. I've had so many people who have talked to me over the years and thanked me when I share about my shortcomings. My wife usually doesn't, but, you know, because <laughs> they involve us. But uh, so many people, I, I really appreciate that you talked about that. You know, I, I've been following Christ for 30-some years now. 
and in that span of time, I've been involved with a lot of Christian leaders. And I've seen differences between what they are, some of them on the pulpit. And don't think you know who I'm talking about because there's a lot of people I've been involved with. So I don't want anyone, I'm not trying to cast anything down on anybody. But I've seen differences between a person on the pulpit and a person in a room alone in their character. And I don't want to be that. And we shouldn't want to be that. We should want to be genuine and not be afraid to be genuine because we are in a community that's trying to bring out healing. See, the idea of taking the dust out of someone else's eye is to help someone to see clearly, is to bring that healing into someone else's life. That's the purpose. If you really want to help someone understand what's your problem and deal with them in a position of empathy and really care about them. What did Paul say? Esteem others as more important than yourself. Didn't say who, whoever. So how are we going to be a community of healing if we're not going to be honest? Where's God's grace? How's it going to flow through us if we don't allow it to? Wounded healers have earned the right to heal. Only when you pull the plank out of your eye can you help others get the dust out of their own eye. And then in verse 6, Jesus says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, didn't he just say don't judge people? Now he's calling them dogs and pigs? It was like harsh words. What's going on here? I mean, again, what Jesus is telling us is, is we need to be critical, but we need to do things the right way. He, he didn't just say don't judge, period. He, he said if you're there, you're there to help someone. But there are times when people will not receive help. There are times when people will not take what is good. And you need to be discerning and a little bit critical sometimes. You need to be able to see what's really taking place. We, we tend to go to these extremes. We either become very legalistic, and this is how it is. The, the Bible says dot, 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 period. Then we draw clear lines. This is it. That's all there is. Or else we go to the other extreme. Hey, man, I'm free in Christ. I'm going to take these drugs and fall into the swimming pool. You know, I mean, it's just like we go all the way over to the other side. And then we say, don't judge me, bro. Don't you know the Bible says, well, what about in Matthew 18 when he talks about how to discipline those who are in the faith community? Oh, no, let's not go there. Let's go back to chapter 7, man. Don't judge me. You see, but there is this reality of life that we need to, to deal with each other. Paul does the same thing. He says, I don't judge those who are in the world, but in the community, we are called to prompt someone to holiness. But you may have experienced, I know I have, trying to help someone, and then they turn on you. 
hey man, you know, you really shouldn't be doing this. You're a follower of Jesus and, and this is a sin. It's not healthy for your soul. And you talk to them about that and who are you to tell me what to do? And, and then you find these people become the most judgmental people in the world. They start telling you all the things wrong with you and how you don't have any right to talk to me about those things. It's none of your business what I do and, and this is my life. You leave me alone, you self-righteous. Who do you think you are? And, and all I'm trying to do is help that person. And you see, you can't make someone better. All you can do is try and, through humility, Point them and lead them to healing, but if they don't want it, there's nothing you can do. They might not want to respond at all. They don't recognize the pearls that you're giving them as truth. They just trample them. It means nothing to me. I don't care about that. It's not what I want. And so Jesus tells us that you don't give the dogs what's sacred. If they're going to blow off the truth, you need to be able to discern, have that kind of discretion, be able to kind of critically see what's taking place and say, okay, I need to let that go. And not force the situation. You need to let it go. And I believe that's what he's trying to get to here. You can't force someone into the kingdom of heaven. I've tried but you can't do it. I'm going to win them. I'm going to debate. And that's what I don't like about debates, you know. You start debating someone, you either come out across as being mean or stupid, you know. It's, like, it's a lose-lose, you know. Be wise in how you invest your time with the people and what their reaction is. There's times where I'll say something to someone, hey, man, what are you doing with this? And if they, ah, don't, don't talk to me about that, okay, I'm not going to continue to try and push this. Maybe God needs to do something more in their life. I'm going to pray for you, but I need to allow that time to continue. He goes on in verse 7. He says, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father and your Father in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus is kind of fulfilling this sermon on the mount. You know, the very beginning, he talked about, you know, the Beatitudes, kind of, touching on that beginning part, the Lord's prayers, kind of the middle asking us, you know, now, how is this going to end? They're kind of like deep understandings of who God is and where we are at. And this is definitely bringing us towards the end. The things that he says here, ask, it's in the present imperative. It has the idea of crucial, 
keep on ask and keep on asking seek keep on seeking it's being pressing pushing this moving in this way what are your thoughts when you think about God and what he wants from us I, I just I picture in my mind here is Jesus standing on this hill with this multitude of just people from all this different walks of life here is God in flesh speaking to these people and I just imagine his eyes as round as saucers saying, ask, seek, knock. God telling us to ask. God telling you to seek. God telling you knock and keep on knocking. We saw earlier that Jesus, when he's teaching us about prayer, your heavenly father knows your needs before you ask. But he tells us, please ask. And keep on asking. Seek, keep on seeking. Do you think of God as wanting you to ask? Or do you think you're bothering him? I don't want to bother God with this. This is silly. And God's saying, please ask. Please talk to me about whatever's going on. You know, when our, our children are little, they love to talk, especially girls. At least my daughter, man, she could go on and on and on. She'd go away with friends, you know, for the day, and they'd bring her back, and they'd go, oh, my gosh, I'm exhausted. You know, they would just <laughs> drop her off because she didn't stop. What was it? She'd always say, and you know what else? That was like her, it was her breath. You know, she'd talk, and, they, and you know what else? And it would just keep going, and you know what else? And you know what else? And she had three brothers, so she had a lot of what else's to tell about. You know, she just could go on and on and on and on. And, you know, when they're little, you just kind of like, okay, I just got to tune them out because, man, I'm going to go crazy. But then they start growing up, and pretty soon they become teenagers and go through this time where they don't talk to you at all. And then you're saying, please talk. Please. What's going on? And you desire to hear from them. You want to know what's going on. And do we see our Heavenly Father as telling you, Ask me. Please ask. Seek. Keep on seeking. And I love this idea of asking and seeking. And he, he emphasizes this again. I mean, he doesn't just say it once. He says, because those who do ask, they will receive. And those who do seek, they will find. And those who do knock, it will be open to them. He, he goes on and he, he says it twice. It's important. The idea of asking is, again, just bearing out those things that we want. And I love the idea of seeking. That God encourages us to seek. I love that it was curiosity that brought Moses 
to a bush that was the encounter with God. Why isn't that bush burning? I'm going to go check it out. I think I'm going to go see what that's about. You see, we are born explorers. When you are born, you know, it's funny. You see parents with their kids and, you know, the kids learning how to crawl. And so they put out a little blanket on the floor. Here you go. As if the kid's going to know, stay on that little blanket. No way. The kid's like, what's going on? Man, pretty soon, you know, they push that head that's the size of a watermelon up off the ground. You know, it's like, oh, and it's a lot of work just to get that head up. You think that'd be inclined to just lay back down but no man they got to push that head up because you can see more like this and then they got to go crawl because there's something shiny over there and they put the little blanket there there stay on the nice little blanket forget the little blanket i got to go see what that shiny thing is and they go and pretty soon it's up higher so i got to stand up man it's a lot of work to see a kid stand you ever see a little kid stand that's a lot of work that big watermelon head, they're all toppling over, you know, fall down. How many times they bump their head? You'd think they'd say, forget it, this is too hard. But no, something in us drives, I got to be able to stand because I got to be able to reach the cookies on the counter, whatever it is. I remember when I was little and you couldn't reach those things. Man, the cupboards were a, a jungle gym. The shelves were perfect so I could climb and then go to the washing machine and then go to this. Whatever I needed to do, it was exploration. I just had to be able to find out what was on that top shelf. And we're just driven to explore and to seek. And I think God has put that within us. But what happens is after we start getting older, there's nothing new. I don't really want to explore anymore. Mark Twain said that men die at 27 and we bury them at 72. Jesus says, seek. Keep on seeking. You want to know the answer to something? Got to look for it. And keep on looking for it. God has so much to give to us, more than we could ever fully grasp. But if we stop seeking, if we think we know it all, well, I've read the Bible a few times. I, I know what it says. Really? Man, there's so much to know. There's so much to know about God and just in the world that he's created. And then to knock that it might be open to us. This is intrusive. Hey, go knock on that door. Oh, I don't want to knock on the door. They have to come to the door and answer it. I'm invading there. I hate it when people come up and knock on the door. Hi, yeah, I'm here. I'm from so-and-so. I'm trying to sell you something. You know, here's an alarm system. Here, buy this book or whatever. Uh, go away. Boom, shut the door. I don't want to. And Jesus says, go knock. I don't like to knock. Can't you just give it to me? No, you got to knock. You got to be intrusive. You got to go up there. You have to knock. And then he tells us who. He said, whoever. Whoever asks, receives. Whoever seeks, finds. The one who knocks, opens. Whoever. It's not limited. Everyone, Democrats, Republicans, 
Jews, Palestinians, rich, poor, those who believe in Jesus, those who don't believe in Jesus, everyone who seeks, they can find. And he's so matter-of-fact, if you seek, you'll find. If you ask, it'll be given. It's, it's going to happen. He just says it automatically. And I think we start wondering, well, this is, what I think really happens is this is the answer I'm looking for and if I don't get the answer I'm looking for, I don't hear anything. This is what I'm seeking, and if I don't find what I'm seeking, I don't find anything. This is what I'm knocking, trying to get open. I want that job. I want that girl. I want that whatever it is, that car. I want that, and so that's what I'm, I'm knocking. And when God opens something else up, no, no, this is what I'm, I'm trying to get. And so I think God is always answering, but I don't think we're cued in on what the answer might be. I think the problem lies with us because Jesus says it's going to happen. If you really seek, if you really ask, if you really knock, God will open it. He'll be there. He'll answer. You'll find it. There is certainty in his words. And he goes on and he says, if you then, though you are evil, in verse 11, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him. And here Jesus brings the character and understanding of God into our view. What is God like? What does he want? Well, you're a father. If you have a child and they come to you and ask for this, are you going to give them this instead? No, that that's wicked. Well, if you're wicked and you wouldn't do that, what is God going to do? And he is showing us the heart of God, of being that of a loving father. You know, one of the greatest things that has happened in my Christian life since I've been a follower of Jesus, probably one of the greatest things that has happened to me to be able to understand God more was being a father. I, I never understood what it was to have that love for your child, and I, I can't explain it. You know, it, it, oh yeah, you just love them. But there's something unique in that love. You give, and you usually don't receive back, but you keep giving and keep giving because you just love, and you're, you're bound to them, and you want what's good for them, and you invest yourself in them to want and do all you can for them. I never understood what that meant when he says, you know, you being evil and would give good for your kids. I'm still self-centered and I still care about my kids. How much more does God care about you? It's just mind-blowing and Jesus is really giving us insight into the heart of God as he talks about this. And I know those of you who have parents or those of you who are parents who have children, 
you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's something that just resonates when you think of your children, especially when they're going through difficult times. And you just want to do what you can to help and be there for them. You wish you could make things change. You, you would like to enter their lives, in fact, if the moms sometimes do, um, and the dads. I shouldn't pin it just on the moms. We want to do all that we can, but um, it gives us insight into the heart of God so much of what he is like. And imagine hearing Jesus saying, this is who your Father in heaven is. And then he switches in verse 12. We're going to end here. He says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. It's kind of like, whoa, where did that come from? But really he's saying, so then just as we live with this generous father in heaven, then the world should expect to live with generous disciples. Just as God is generous to us, to give good to us, we should be generous to give the good to others. That's how we are like our Father who is in heaven. That is how we exemplify who he is. Remember, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. The identity that they had was they were peacemakers. Why? Because that's who God is. That's his DNA. And so we are to have that within us as well. We are to do to others what we would have them to do to us. And that sums up the law and the prophets. That's what it's about. Caring about them just as you would yourself. And so he talks with this, starts with this idea of judging don't judge until you see yourself first and are there to really help each other because this is really what it's all about. It ends kind of on the same note here that everything you do for others do that would be benefit to them just like you want to be a benefit to yourself. And that sums it all up. And so we are to live generous lives just as our Father who is in heaven is also generous. Let's pray. Father, we, we live in this balance of having to be involved with the lives of those around us and at the same time being aware of our relationship with you. And may that determine, Lord, how we do everything. May your spirit move within us, keep us from pride, keep us from that arrogance, keep us from a judgment that is not there for healing purposes, but is there for other reasons, whatever those reasons might be. Lord, and help us to put energy in that self-examination to, to remove the plank that is in our own eye. God, may we care more about that than we do about anyone else and their problems. Father, I believe you're telling us through these passages that there are serious things that we need to deal with before we're ever going to be able to effectively deal with those around us. And may we realize that and may we deal with those things so that we can bring healing. And I pray that Genesis would be a community of healing. I pray that there would be your grace between us that would be welcoming, that people would be able to, to share, even if they share things that might seem outlandish and be somewhat shocking. God, 
you're not shocked. And may we meet everything with your love, your mercy, and your grace. I thank you again for being so patient with us, being so loving. Bless, we pray, for your name's sake, your people, in Jesus' name. Amen.